So welcome to episode two of Through the Noise with me, Alex Banks. This is a platform where we cut through the noise on startups, community and capital every week through curiosity sparking conversations with founders, funders and friends. To set the room, we'll... So our guest today is Barrett O'Neill. So Barrett is the co-founder of On Demand Storage, a technology-based storage company bringing the on-demand economy to self-storage by giving its customers more time, space and convenience. As part of the founding team, Barrett helped grow on-demand storage from a dorm room concept to a seven-figure business. Prior to on-demand storage, Barrett was an associate at Bain Capital, one of the world's leading alternative investment firms with over $155 billion in assets under management. Now, I've been super excited to do this one, and it's time to dive right in. So, Barrett, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Alex. This is great. It's going to be fun. So I do want to start with a little bit on you, and I'm curious to learn how the idea for on-demand storage originated from a college dorm room and how you made your way to becoming a co-founder. Yeah, so it's a it's a pretty awesome story. Um, if anyone wants the um, written version, I, I did a, a Twitter thread on this once Um that's pretty cool. But basically, we were on a train ride into Boston to watch the Red Sox play in the World Series from a bar. And a guy who went to our school happened to be get on the train behind us. And he was like, I don't know, maybe 30, 38, 39 at the time. And he gets on the train with us. And basically, we get into a conversation. And then it turns out he sold his business for $400 million. And so then, you know, obviously we were starstruck and we were asking him tons of questions. And he told us how starting businesses in college was what really gave him a um, foundation to do what he did later on. And so we noticed at our school that there were tons of international students. And so we said they need a place to put their stuff. And so I self-coded a little website um, and then my other partner at the time put flyers under every single door on campus. And we ended up getting like 67 students signed up and we stored all of the items in my parents' basement. Um, it was, it was like all it was like over 350 items, boxes, bins, all this stuff. It was insane. Um, but it taught us so much about business and about this opportunity with student storage. And then after that, you know, we went to work for a year in the, in the corporate world. And, um, I noticed that in California, a few startups had raised a lot of money. Um, one in particular called clutter and they were calling themselves on-demand storage companies. And so I went on GoDaddy and just typed in the domain and it was available. And I said, well, at a minimum, it seems like this industry is burgeoning and it's going to get bigger. And so I'm just going to buy this. It is a good piece of intellectual property to have. And so I just scooped it up right there. And then we kind of built the business, actually around that once we had it we felt pretty strongly about that piece of intellectual property and it kind of gave us the spark to get started yeah i love how you just committed first and then figured the rest out later um i (laughs) also love the idea of you know you were on the way to watch the red Sox at a bar and i think you know at least where we can exposing ourselves to to all of this serendipity that that life has to offer and at least sparking the the nexus of ideas that that we can sort of play out in our lives i think's really really wonderful barrett so that's an awesome story there now i'm aware you were a baseball college athlete so 
from that, what was the primary lesson you pulled from that experience across to the world of startups and operating a business? Yeah, it's a really good question. And um, I was I was on a, a call in the other day and we were talking a lot about this. And my story is a little unique. I went to the University of Virginia originally. And when I went there, it was um, one of the top, probably a top five baseball school in the country. So I was like pretty much living my dream, honestly. And what ended up happening is I had this weird injury, this strange complication, and I went from kind of on top of the world to my dreams getting crushed almost instantaneously. And so I ended up transferring um, up to Babson College in Massachusetts, which was closer to my home business-focused school. And um, from that, it, it, I learned – I thought my life was pretty much over at that point. It, it was my – everything I had thought about up until that point in time just ended seemingly in a second. And so what it taught me though, as a little bit of time passed and I started building these companies is like, you you can find other things to be passionate about. And also that failure, even though it hurts in the moment, doesn't really last forever. And there's a lot of great things to be picked up from it. So I've felt that I have a lot of confidence in things that I do now, because I don't think I'll care about any particular business as much as I did my athletic career, um, which was like basically how I identified myself. And so it's basically taught me to just really get in the game and try things. And it's sometimes they work out and sometimes they don't, but nothing's going to work out if you don't, if you don't give yourself a shot. So that's been the primary lesson for me, um, which was one that took probably five to six years to really develop as I was getting over, um, my sports career ending the way it did, but it was super valuable and something that I, you know, it still feels fresh. And I, I remember that lesson almost every day. Yeah, I think that's quite a huge contrast going from the top of the world, you know, playing competitive, competitive baseball to then the lows of injury. Everything you worked for was immediately cut. There's a great quote by the, the, the philosopher Seneca, and he said that we suffer more in imagination than we do in reality. And I think it's very, very true for some of these quite pivotal moments in our life, Barrett, where, for example, with yours, you know, you, you're... you're aspirations with 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 your baseball career were seemingly cut in half whereas actually it can teach you to pursue other veins of other interests and that can actually open up far more opportunity than you would have ever thought yeah i, I couldn't agree more it, 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 it sports are great there's a lot of great lessons to be taken from sports and a lot of them come from winning but a lot of them come from losing as as a lot of successful athletes and business people have talked about but um, in particular for me, it just, it really helped me feel like, Hey, you know, things like outside my health or something like that, you know, it's like, I, I can take a lot, I can handle a lot. And I feel that helps me in business. And it's like, you don't get too rattled about things when they don't go your way, which <laughs> anyone in business knows feels like it happens more often than not. Um, but it, it, it was a great experience um, and certainly something that I think if I can continue to be successful in the future will be something that I'll always look back on as a turning point for me. Yeah, absolutely. I think now is quite a nice time to pivot the conversation across to tech-enabled startups, specifically within self-storage and services. So the self-storage industry is worth over $32 billion right now. So how do you view the current state of the self-storage market with the application of technology? I mean, I think the storage market has been been booming um, in lots of different 
there's lots of different sub markets within storage, whether it's self storage, RV storage, warehouse storage, boat storage, just pretty much everything. Um, but I, I think the American economy has done really well over the last 10 to 12 years and people have bought a lot of stuff and they need a place to put it. And I think the development of self-storage, which has been rapid, I think the valuations on self-storage, which are at all time highs, um, I, I think it just speaks to the tailwinds behind storage in general. And I think technology um as it relates to storage, it just makes it easier for people to rent units. It makes it easier for people to find places to put things. I've seen a few peer-to-peer startups pop up, basically meaning um, I, you could like rent my garage from me and store stuff in it. Uh, I'm not totally convinced that that's a great business model, though I think it just speaks to the institutional level interest in storage and recurring revenue type businesses. Um, so, I, I mean, I think there's a long runway because I don't see people having more space in the future than they do now um, as, you know, real estate becomes more expensive and there's more regulation and things like that around development. Yeah, absolutely. You said the development of self-storage has been rapid. So from that, what are the significant market opportunities, if there are any, if there are any sorry, that are almost yet to be exploited? Yeah, I think that I think the interesting opportunity is where we sit. I mean, I think self-storage is a is a pretty well-developed um, concept. Uh, it was like originally developed in the 1980s, I believe. Um, and it really was a function of they originally started popping up in locations where people didn't have basements like Arizona and California. And then eventually it just became everybody wanted offsite storage, like out of sight, out of mind, I think drives a lot of it. Um, but I think the opportunities are in layering service on top. And I think that's really what we're trying to do at on-demand storage. Um, and then even within that, we've really found a home with commercial storage. It seems that businesses um, because of the price of industrial space, businesses that in the past may have rented their own space are now looking to outsource that space and specifically smaller, well-located warehouses that would have been convenient to run logistics out of just doesn't really make economic sense for a lot of companies anymore. Um, and certainly what we've seen in Boston is there's a huge life science and biotech community and they're paying so much money for their real estate that storing things on site really doesn't make sense at all. Like the opportunity cost of a room full of boxes versus lab space is, you know, laughable to an investor. So therefore them outsourcing to a company like us who can pick that up and then deliver it when they need it back is so much cheaper than having a, um, you know, arm of their business that can handle that or their own space. It just, it's hard to find that type of space and it doesn't make a ton of sense. So I think there's a lot of opportunity by adding a layer of service. And we refer to that internally as soft logistics. We don't want to be like an XPO logistics or old dominion freight line type of business, but more so, you know, hey, if you need deliveries on, you know, once every couple of weeks or Tuesdays and Thursdays, then we can hook up with a delivery partner who can pick up at our locations and make those deliveries. And companies are more than happy to pay for those. And even residential consumers are more than happy to pay for that. There's a convenience aspect that self-storage doesn't have that I think the market will crave. But to be clear, I don't think anything's going to happen to self-storage. I just think that this is a new 
um, opportunity within the larger storage market that people, there's a subset of people and companies that will want a service component for convenience. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And I think as a tech-enabled company, what other features alongside soft logistics that you mentioned there are you using really most to benefit your customer base? Yeah, most of it is is around the pickup and storage and making it easy for them to schedule pickups and deliveries through our platform. Um, we do service student storage as well, which is how our business started. I referenced that, though we don't do that quite as much as we used to. We have a pretty robust platform that allows for scale and we actually enable other companies with our software to have a student storage pickup and delivery business. That's a great seasonal opportunity for like a traditional moving company that has the assets um, in another part of the country where maybe we aren't. So there's just, there's a lot of enablement that can happen for other companies with technology that have the assets and they can make more money off their existing cost structure. And then there's the consumer end of the technology, which is Hey, rather than emailing back and forth 10 times, we can quickly schedule, we can schedule pickups, deliveries, um, and have a, you know, maybe they don't need a consistent delivery schedule, but it's just easier for them to go on at times that our assets are available to service their needs. And then they can just book that um, and, and pay online and all these things that you'd be surprised, like traditional warehouse storage companies have not done a good job of integrating all of these things. And so it's a little bit clunky, like calling people and the word has to be passed between two or three different people to get approval. And just, just kind of like that old way of doing business that just isn't efficient at all and causes frustration for the end customer. So if you can remove those um, hurdles, we believe that you can then get price relief and charge more money because of a because you're more convenient and that's what we've seen and like we're, we're able to get up to like 27 to 30 dollars per square foot which is way more than the space cost to lease on your own around here um, in the metro boston area but i think that's a function of convenience and making it easy for them and you also have to be working with the right types of customers right there are customers who are looking for the cheapest price that's not who we're trying to service to dive into the customer end a little bit more, um, what, what you were just mentioning there, Barrett, I know you can view and manage your storage virtually. So how would you see this layering of technology developing on into the future? It, it's interesting. Some competitors have tried some different applications um, around like measurement tools and things like that. But what we found is the uh, through our data and conversations with customers is the most important thing to them is to be able to quickly manage their inventory and request items back or requested subsequent pickups is actually a surprising something that I wouldn't have expected to be as frequent as it is. But a lot of people want multiple, want a job to happen over multiple interactions. Like it's overwhelming for them. If they're say someone's downsizing their 4,000 square foot home, it might be overwhelming for them to get everything ready for storage. So the fact they can, they know they need some stuff out, then they can call us back again and get us back again um, easily has been really, that's been the biggest value. So I think we'll continue to look for ways to just optimize the experience around scheduling and making it easy um, for them to get our crews on site and get their stuff out of storage. I actually don't think there's a ton of utility at this point in 
like managing individual items um, specifically online. I mean, I, I think when we first started out, we thought that that would be like a huge differentiator and something people really cared about. But remember that the vast majority of these things are just sitting there for long periods of time or those are the ideal customers. So it's really about the experience of communication and making scheduling frictionless, payment frictionless. So I think there'll just be continued development around that experience for the, for our customers. Yeah, upping the speed and reducing the frictions, I, I love it. So what would you attribute to be the key drivers for the success of on-demand storage now, Barrett? I think it's just going to be – so we we decided to build our business a little bit slower on the front end. And rather than go and raise capital, we bootstrapped the company. And so we built it to a profitable point, And now we really have to decide the best way to scale. And um, we've we've tested a few different things. But so we're looking at, you know, through – scaling through acquisition. And, and one thing we think is maybe acquiring traditional moving companies and then getting rid of the assets we don't want, like their trucks um, and many costs in their, in their P&L that, that we wouldn't need. And we've pretty much done that with our own business. So I think that's an opportunity. And then I think the other opportunity is what I hinted at earlier, which is enablement and enabling other companies to provide the same experience to their customers that we're providing. Um, and I think there's a big opportunity there, which that's like a truly when you say tech enabled, you can enable your own company and customers with technology, but you can also enable other companies with technology, which I think is a great way to scale. And so I think that's something that that we've dabbled in quite a bit in the past and are continuing to, to look at that. Um, and I think that ultimately, you know, there, we're going to develop some tools around that um, and, and try to grow that way. Yeah, absolutely. I think to dive a little bit more into this tech-enabled feature, Eric Huberman, the CEO of Hawk Media, he said that <clears throat> tech-enabled companies, they, they aren't building the internet, but but these tech companies, you know, with the likes of Teslas, the Apples, these guys are building the hardware, the software, the algorithms, and the platforms behind it. So do you see the market potential for tech-enabled startups to be as large as pure play high-tech startups? I'd say no, because I think the, by nature, services, so technology is able to, high growth tech companies are usually able to put customers into a box. And with service, because every situation is slightly different, um, I think it's really hard to scale at that level. You know, for example, like if you were trying to scale a plumbing company, right? Like think of how different every interaction that a, a plumber has when they're on site. So I think at the end of the day, tech enabled service is still service and service businesses are hard to scale at that level. I think what the tech enablement does is allows those companies to scale more than they would be able to without good technology, like centralized systems and automated billing and, um, you know, text messaging, automated reminders, just like communicating with their customers in the ways that they want to be communicated with. I think that makes these companies better. I do not think that a service company has the ability to scale to the size of a Facebook or something like that. Um, I just, I think each interaction is too differentiated to accomplish that. Yeah, I think it definitely allows these companies to scale further and faster. What would then perhaps be some of the qualities required by management for this roll-up and tech adoption to be successful? It's an interesting question. I, I, 
I think the best companies are going to be the ones who can who can develop the right amount and implement the right amount of technology. I think technology by nature tends to get overbuilt, which then makes it confusing and hard for these companies to actually implement and roll out. So I think there's like this sweet spot of where it's like, hey, it takes all these manual processes and makes them super easy. But then there's this level further. I think a good example would be using the iPhone to measure the dimensions of items going into storage. It's like on paper, that sounds like an awesome idea. You could optimize a warehouse, but in practice, I just, that just doesn't really work. And there's been a lot of money invested into ideas like that. And it doesn't work because in order to create a good customer experience, like people on site might add something new to their job. And then it's like, Oh, does that change their whole process? And what does that look like? And are you nickel and diming people? And what does that do to the customer experience when there's too much technology? There's, there needs to be a level of like using human intuition. But I think if the technology can scale that, that's where you get this sweet spot um, that really works and allows service businesses to become bigger and more profitable than they would have been otherwise. Um, but certainly it's it's building a tech stack that actually makes the business better, not creates new processes that are just technology driven. Yeah, you mentioned the best companies are those who implement the right amount. And I'm totally with you there, Barrett. There's absolutely a balance to be found. Would you say this is a function of preparation or perhaps taking things as and when they appear and building your tech along the way? I think it's a function of real, I think building it along the way, but I think it's a function of really just getting to know your customer because for example, with on demand, our customers are so different than we originally started out with. Like we thought all of our customers would be young kids living in the city who would rather sign up with technology than, you know, go to a self storage facility. And it really hasn't, we do definitely get some of those customers, but they haven't been our best ones. Our best customers are businesses that have ongoing needs and need expanding and contracting space and and people in the suburbs downsizing their home that have money because they're liquidating their house and they would rather have somebody else do it for them. So I think if you build technology before you understand your business, that's when it doesn't really work. So I would say technology is an ongoing iterative process, but it needs to be customer driven and then there's an operational and that needs to be you know driven by ops but i still think ops are driven by customer needs at the end of the day so i'm just a huge advocate for just always talking to your customers and asking them like you know what do you like about our service what don't you like and then you know if you get five or ten or twenty customers saying they don't like something you know maybe it's it's time to address that and say okay how can we make this process better and then how can we make it better with technology Yeah, I'm totally with you there. Be customer first and match your supply to whatever that customer is at least seeking or wanting. So with that in mind, what does the future for the company look like and also the storage sector as a whole? Yeah, I think the storage sector is going to continue to grow. I think think if you look at all big markets, what ends up ultimately happening is – markets get so big that then generalized messaging doesn't speak to anybody. So then people create these niche opportunities and group themselves there. And I think that's what's happening with storage. Like, for example, this, like I said, the storage self storage industry started in the eighties. 
But now, you know, there's a subset of people that don't want to do it themselves. There's companies that, you know, may have liabilities for doing it. There's people with RVs, there's people with boats. So I think what happens is services ultimately are created to service each individual part of this larger market. And I, I think that's just the natural maturation of market. So I think you're going to continue to see things, whether it's like the on-demand style of storage, whether it's the peer-to-peer. I mean, who knows? Like I said, I'm not super bullish on that, but it could work. Um, I've seen car storage in a peer-to-peer capacity. I've seen storing things and then renting them out to other people, which failed. But I think there's an interesting case to be made for that. So I think you're just going to keep seeing these new spins on it as time passes. Um, And I think the storage with pickup on demand, whatever you want to call it, valet storage sector will continue to grow. I do not think it's going to unseat self-storage anytime soon, which I think some people in the industry say is hyperbole, but I think it's going to continue to grow as more people and companies in particular just value their space and would rather pay to outsource additional stuff. Um, And so I don't think storage is unique in that aspect of, of, over time, niche is becoming more prominent. But I do think you're starting to see that within the storage industry, which I guess makes sense if it's been around for 40 or so years. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense there. But last week, we started a little something, Barrett, where at the end of the pod, where each guest leaves a question that will be asked to an unknown guest on the following episode. So last time, we had the great Dave Klein on, the owner of Skill Scouter and ex-Bridgewater. So Barrett... The question he gave me to ask you is this. Someone offers you significant but not life-changing money for your current business. Do you take it or stay on your current mission? <laughs> so this, so it's funny. This recently happened to us, um, and we did say no, um, and we are staying on our mission. So I think, like I said, I think that this this faction of – storage will continue to grow. And I think we're well positioned to do really well with it because we focused on profits and we know how to build a profitable business in this industry. And with we are really focused on recurring revenue. We've grown it tremendously. I've tweeted about this recently. So I think it would be foolish to sell now. It feels like we're just getting to the good part. So I would say no. I mean, there's certainly a level, I think, like anybody else, if enough, if enough is there, then maybe it makes sense. But you know, for us, we feel confident in the next four to five years. Um, we feel confident in our team. So, you know, I I don't think it's something we're looking to do at this point in time, um, unless it were really a sweet deal. Yeah, I think if you're getting to the good part with anything, Barrett, who wouldn't say, you know, you know, you you always want to continue discover and see what real upside is there to grab. <laughs> right, exactly. So that's, um, you know, that that's where we're where we're at now and um who knows maybe that'll change hopefully someday somebody wants to pay a lot of money for it but um you know if not now we'll keep trying to build value into it till that day yeah i love that i think to follow suit barra if you can kindly write down a question and send it over to me after this pod what i'll do is i'll ask the guest at the end of the next episode so we'll we'll do that a little bit later um, yeah, for sure. I'll email it to you. Absolutely. But I think, listen, Barrett, this this conversation has been deeply, deeply insightful into something which, do you know what, Barrett? I hate to say it. I deemed it a little bit unsexy, self-storage. But do you know what? You have, you have 
you you've you flashed it and now i've i've really seen it all so now i'm i'm wholly educated within the on-demand storage sector so thank you my friend for for sharing this conversation with me yeah thanks for giving giving our unsexy sector a little bit of a little bit of love <laughs> uh, we appreciate it <laughs> yeah but this has been a really really great conversation and i'm sure our wonderful listeners will enjoy tuning back in at the end but barrett it's been a real real pleasure my friend awesome thanks for having me